Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, we welcome back autistic linguist and musician Dr Gemma Williams for her second appearance as a special guest to discuss the 2009 historical drama Vision, directed by Margaret von Trotter. Joining Gemma are regular hosts David Hartley, John James Laidlow and Ethan Lyon. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello everyone and uh, welcome to another episode of Autism Through Cinema podcast. We're back again today to uh, talk about a particular film from an autistic perspective. Um, And today we're going to be talking about the film Vision by, now then, I haven't checked how to pronounce the director's name, but I believe it's Margaret von Trotter. Is that right? People are nodding. Okay, Margaret von Trotter is the director of um, this film, Uh, called Vision, but uh, uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about that in a moment. My name is uh, David Hartley, and I'm joined today by uh, John James Laidlow, Ethan Lyon, and we're delighted to bring back um, somebody who has been a special guest on a previous episode, who came and joined us for uh, the episode on Phenomena. Uh, We're welcoming back uh, Gemma Williams today. Uh, Thanks for coming back uh, to join us, Gemma. And it is Gemma, actually, who has brought along this film, Vision, for us to watch. Um, so I'm now going to pass over to Gemma, who's going to say a few words about the film, um, what the film is about, and uh, why we're kind of looking at this from the po- point of view of autism. So, Gemma, whenever you're ready, over to you. Great, thanks. Thanks, David. And, um, yeah, thanks so much for having me back again. Um, I, I hope you I hope you like the film. It's one that um, I got really obsessed with, but I, I feel like it might also be a bit of a weird choice. I'm interested to hear what you would think about it. Um, so, yeah, the film's from 2009, um, and it's kind of an interpret- interpretation of uh, the life of Hildegard von Bingen. Um, so Hildegard was a... I feel a bit weird calling it Hildegard. Saint Saint Hildegard uh, was a 12th century uh, abbess. Uh, She was a mystic, a polymath, um, a composer, a herbalist, and she invented one of the first known constructed languages made by a woman. Um, And she's been a bit of a special, autistic special interest of mine. Uh, So the film, it it follows her life um, from when she's a child and she's given to the church as a tithe um, and she spends her sort of formative childhood years growing up in this cloister under the care of some nuns Um, and then the film kind of tracks her journey through uh, becoming a magistra magistra, um, the the kind of head nun of the cloister um, and she 
starts experiencing these kind of mystical visions, uh, which cause a bit of upset within the church. They don't really trust trust the veracity of them. They think she, she's possessed by the devil. But then the Pope gets involved and endorses them. And yeah, so and and then you have this. It, she has this kind of really uh, interesting, very intense relationship with an apprentice nun called Richardis. Um, and so that it feels that that fills up a lot of the the film. Um, and I think I, I I thought it'd be interesting for this podcast because it has a big theme of difference in it. Um, so she describes herself as uh, feeling different. And the moment we meet her, she's introduced as um, a child that sees the world differently and hears and sees things that most people don't. Um, and there are themes of of health and ill health and and uh, all this kind of yeah vision but also music and sounds these sort of sensory differences and yeah I just I, I thought it was intriguing <laughs> well thank you very much for bringing the film along Gemma um I must confess when it was brought up I did have to do a little research on a surely it's 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 not that film because I hadn't considered it in relation to autism uh, but it was absolutely fascinating in a number of different ways uh, I also think as a film itself it's an excellent film I think it's a very well-made film with a very very uh, powerful performance by Barbara Sukova uh, in the main role of Hildegard uh, it's funny also you mention it as a autistic special interest. Um, one of my very dearest friends who is also on the spectrum, in fact, I think she was the f uh, one of the first people I became very close friends and actually uh, came close friends with who I knew was autistic. Um, and indeed she was very, she was an essential part of both my academic progression and also my personal progression. She is, uh, she has a fascination uh, with the medieval, medieval monsters in particular, and um, that sort of milieu. Uh, so it's perhaps not surprising that, uh, that, 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 that we were to find it in other places. Um, I did reading on Hildegard. I knew about Hildegard before the podcast, um, mainly from a musical point, because um, as I think you briefly mentioned, she was a polymath and a lot of her early, a lot of her music does survive, actually. I think she's the earliest known female composer and her, uh, her vocal music, uh, which you can actually find on YouTube, is really quite beautiful and very, very impressive, although I understand that others may want to talk about that themselves. I'm interested to see more in terms of sort of the autistic perspective on this because I I perhaps did not pick up on that as strongly. Certainly the migraine aspect I did pick up on and I found some very interesting stuff on that. But again, I'm always uh, interested to find out things which probably were not in my wheelhouse. So thank you very much for this. Um, yeah, th thanks Gemma for bringing the film because I, I hadn't seen it before and... Um... I do find Hildegard, St. Hildegard von Bingen, um, a very uh, fascinating um, figure from history. I mean, um, there's, there's a the musical artist that I really like who goes by the name Lingua Ignota, um, who is it's sort of um, 
um, kind of like heavy metal, like religious inspired, and 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 she's because she had quite a religious upbringing, and it's kind of about processing her trauma. Um, and obviously, she's heavily inspired by Hildegard. Um, so I, I found it really interesting to watch this film and learn more about Hildegard. Um, um, I don't I don't know how historically accurate it is. I, I, I haven't read a lot about Hildegard herself but um yeah it was really interesting um and it, it yeah it's a, it's a really it's a strange film and I don't, I don't mean that in a horrible way like it kind of feels like out of time and out of place like the the style um it feels like it could be an an earlier film but then also there's like it there's like really interesting choices stylistically um that i feel are quite um like idiosyncratic in a way almost like hildegard's character and and her her mindset so i thought that was really interesting as well and um yeah um her music is also available on spotify which is quite funny (laughs) but yeah Oh, let's all listen to her music and try and like bump her up the Spotify algorithm. So it would be really cool. Um, yeah, no, I echo this. I echo what um, John Jones and Ethan have just said, Gemma. I thought this was a really interesting film and um, I really enjoyed it. I found it really compelling, uh, very well put together, very well told. Um, the central performance was really good. Um, and I, I, And it's just an interesting film because it's about a period of history that I don't really know much about at all. Um, it's also a period of history you don't often see on film, actually. You know, I mean, there are plenty of historical films and I guess plenty of films about the medieval ages, but this feels like a very specific moment in time, especially since like at, at the beginning, which I believe is a, potentially a little bit of anachronism, I'm not sure, but at the very beginning we have this moment where there, there are all of these priests and... Uh, all these people, religious people, like us, sort of um, waiting for the the turn of the millennium, wait, waiting for th- everything to go from nine hundred ninety nine to one thousand, and I think I get the impression that they were all sort of believed that the world was about to end, and then and they're sort of all sleeping in a church, and then one of them wakes up and looks out, and the world hasn't ended; it's continued on. And actually, that was a beautiful scene and a, a really compelling way to open this film. Um, and there's a kind of implication there that they connect this sort of miracle of life continuing with almost with the the sort of with the birth of Hildegard or the or the the coming of Hildegard, I suppose. Um, although in reality she wasn't born until quite some like about a hundred years later or something like that, I think in reality. Um, but nevertheless, it was it was I found it a really compelling time period to spend time within because it's just one of those eras of history that you. And also locations like it being in, in set in Germany, uh, or what is now Germany, um, was was really compelling and really interesting. And it was lovely to watch this and consider um, potentially the sort of autistic qualities of both the the, the Hildegard we see on in the film itself, um, and then kind of to be able to then ruminate, I suppose, or consider the historical Hildegard. Um, I suppose we have to sort of slightly address, and I wonder if others might have to say something, something to say about this as well. We have to sort of acknowledge that uh, when we talk about historic, famous historical figures um, and sort of attach 
the term autism to them. We have to be very careful in that way because these are people who wouldn't, who have not received the diagnosis of autism, um, because the diagnosis of autism didn't exist until the 1940s, and even then was, you know, there's major problems around how we diagnose people, and there still are. Um, but we sort of have to be careful about sort of picking these amazing people from history um, and saying, oh, they were autistic, definitely, because we sort of don't have the capacity or the power or to be able to do that. But having said that, it's still on the flip side, a very interesting process and a very compelling process to be able to identify autistic traits within significant people from history um, to sort of indicate the longevity and the importance, I guess, of autistic presence within hum human life going forward. Um, so it's, I think it's just important to, to acknowledge that at this stage. But yeah, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah, I think um, that's probably one, like, one of the reasons why I, I thought this film might be interesting for this podcast, because I absolutely agree about sort of retrospective diagnoses. And I think what you can see in some of the characteristics that this character in the film has, who's based on a real person, so you can see some qualities which, and characteristics which today might be included in a, the diagnostic criteria, for example. And, and I've been thinking a lot recently about the fact that, um, you know, your autism as a kind of condition or a way of being was first coined or identified around the 40s, but as a diagnosis, it only came into being in the 80s. And, and yet people, you know, exist... And, you know, all around the world as well in different cultures and at different times. And so this film, because it's, as you say, quite far removed from the world as we know it now, it, was, it's, it seems really interesting to think about how people who were different may find places for themselves. Um, and I think that's one of the things I, found, I find really interesting about this film. It's like Hildegard is... She's introduced as a, at the beginning as a child who, as I said, she's, I think they say she would understand the language of plants, animals and stones and recognise in her heart the signs that are only revealed to a few. So we're, she's set up as someone that communicates differently, understands the world differently. And she, she finds herself in a, a literal cloister, but also a kind of metaphorical... She, it's, she's cloistered, like she's in a protected environment... Um, where there are clear rules that she le we see her learning the clear rules and that kind of works and in the framework of Christian r religion her ways of being seem to fit you know but if she had you know put her in a different context or a different time having you know visions might be called hallucinations or you know like so I would yeah I was just really interested in how that context changed how you see things. <laughs> I think it's very, very interesting that you've brought up that context and the um, the elements that sort of surround Hildegard as, that, that that largely sort of facilitate her being seen as visionary, mystic, etc., etc. It made me think about uh, Foucault and his writings on madness in particular, which, uh, which not to suggest that Hildegard herself is mad. Um, 
Foucault and admittedly Foucault's arguments are cherry picked. There's a lot of like historical and critical uh, literature written around the fact that a lot of what Foucault says is a bit bunk, but some of it is really quite fascinating at the same time. Foucault's main argument is that pre-enlightenment, by which time we, by which I mean the period where we have things such as uh, the attempt to treat illness in various ways through um, institutionalization, uh, medicinal elements, and then moving on to the 20th centuries, things such as electroshock, so on and so forth, uh, in his mind constituted a step back from pre-enlightenment medieval understandings of difference, where uh, while it may have been in some cases more not barbaric, but well, yeah, barbaric in some respects in as much as isolation and the madhouse. There was also an element on the individual's liberty and their own sort of autonomy was respected more in terms of, um, you know, uh, they were seen as possessing a gift, for example. Their difference was seen as a gift and as an advantage. And certainly you can interpret Hildegard, uh, you could interpret the character of Hildegard in the film as being roughly analogous to this in terms of that she has a very clear, even if you rule out the visions themselves and the ideas that they give her, quote unquote, because we're never again made to believe whether they are one thing or another, she is very evidently a very strong-willed, very clearly defined woman but uh, it's also clear that she that those uh, that that uh, visionary aspect of her is treated as unique and uh, something of of respect um, but I also think it's interesting how you mentioned the church as well um, how she eventually has to fight against the patriarchy effectively a patriarchal system which perceive which places her and her visions within a very specific masculine context of um, that they must subord they must be subordinate to a male concept of what a vision is. There's the scene where she is questioned by effectively inquisitors who effectively yell at her that she is uh, tricked by the devil and that none of what she's seen is actually a vision from God, which um, which which begs a number of questions. But we shall gloss over that. Uh, so I think that's very very interesting to discuss as well, and also actually quite relevant in terms of Antrotta's work uh, as a lot of she was a she is rather a feminist filmmaker much of her work is about exploring uh, small societies of women often sisters um, fraternally and um, and the various socio-political movements that sort of swirl around them but I feel like that's something which we can get into a little bit later but uh, yeah I wanted to sort of uh, support what you were saying there in a long and rambling way. Um, yeah, I, th I think the um, sort of specific cultural context of of the film is probably really um, important to acknowledge and how um, and how it, it it's obviously very different to the world we live in now. Um, and um, dur during the first lockdown, I kind of became obsessed with. Um, TikTok, and um, there's there's this um, medieval historian on there who I'd like to bring up briefly. Uh, she's called uh, Dr. M. J. Pardon, 
Um, so she she specialises in um, medieval history, um, especially around religion and medieval justice. And she did this whole sort of video series on um, saint or heretic. And so she kind of you know she she presented these these often women um, who had similar experiences to Hildegard, like visions or had voices or. Um, even just had um, ideas that the men around her didn't agree with and um, you had to guess at the end before she gave the answer whether whether this person was deemed a saint or a heretic and the the whole point was that these it, it, the actual conditions were so close together that it was just determined by um, as Ethan said the, the patriarchal structure like those inquisitors that come in and 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 shout at Hildegard and abuse her. Um, and she also did a video on um, a brief video on Joan of Arc and how it's kind of a bit um, a bit un unethical and anachronistic to sort of apply these these labels of um, I think with Joan of Arc, if someone was saying that um, she probably had schizophrenia, but obviously that that didn't exist either. Um, back in this time um, and um, within the context of this sort of very religious um, society um, and culture it was it wasn't that uncommon for people to go into these ecstatic states like it not not to the extent that Hildegard does but you see even in the beginning of this film how everyone's convinced the world is going to end and they sort of fall on the floor and there's people self-flagellating and so this this idea that it it's not it's not that far out of the normal for this this context and i think it's quite interesting because you could read um this depiction of hildegard von bingham through a number of different sort of modern lenses um what was did she have I mean, what we call psychosis, or now what we call autism, or as Ethan mentioned, migraines, or, you know, there's, there's so many, I was making notes like, oh, that's what we would call rejection sensitivity dysphoria now, when, when, when um, I can't remember the character's name, wants to leave the cloister, and um, she has become a huge cultural icon today, Hildegard, and... Um, and really important for a lot of people and um it's a yeah it's kind of complex to to pick apart what she means for all different people actually speaking on that a brief thing which i do want to mention and put out there because my word am i not qualified to talk about this at all is while reading about uh von totter's film uh, people have interpreted the dynamic between Ricardis and Hildegard as having uh, lesbian uh, undertones, uh, something which von Trotter was at pains to uh, shy away from, and she stressed it more as a very intense female friendship. Now, I am depressingly straight, Therefore, it's not really my place to talk about this. However, I felt it's an interesting subject to bring up as well in relation to cultural context and various contexts. 
because there is uh, well there are a number of both historians but also youtubers there's a number of excellent youtubers who very carefully analyze historical figures in relation to queer theory and queer history and um i can under i can imagine how hildegard herself may slot into that um that sort of uh category we should also consider as well that uh as of the time of recording uh paul verhoven has a new film out which is of course benedetta which is a um a, a film based around another real event later on including a a nun who uh, may or may not have been romantically involved with another nun and was also put on trial for uh, a her heretical uh, beliefs but that is a lot more openly explicit um having said that that is verhoven so i think that's unfortunately uh, well, not unfortunately it's just kind of his bag but um yeah i thought it would be sensible to sort of enter these these conversate uh, questions into the conversation and then not answer any of them also worth noting one of my favorite moments of the film was when um when she starts composing um kind of turn of the century erotica medieval erotica when she talks, starts talking about the male seed and the female blood and and how they get absorbed and the guy who um the, the her friend um volner who has to, who's taken on the task of writing down all of her various visions sort of has an uncomfortable moment when he's like do i really need to write this down are we doing this now um but no i mean there was a kind of yeah i mean maybe you're always going to get that with 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 films about nuns even those those ones that are most um you know not sort of sexualized that there might still be sort of there's such an intensity of like people are so as you say like cloistered in together that the there's, there's there's those sort of themes will often start to echo up a little bit one of the interesting things i wanted to mention about the film itself was that um one of the th things i thought at the end was that for a film that's called vision it's uh it's interesting that it seems to it sort of shies away a little bit in, in terms of actually trying to sort of show the visions that she has necessarily there's one near towards the beginning in the sort of first half where she where we sort of first see her kind of having a, a proper kind of reaction or seizure or whatever it is and we do get to see this kind of what she sees, which is sort of, um, she sees she was looking at the sky and the light, um, this big blinding light, which then turns into the shape of an eye, um, and we're sort of getting we get a sense there of her vision that she's having at that point. But then later on in the film, you know, there's a lot of talk around the fact that she's having visions and that they're very important, and she describes what she sees, big blinding lights that she sort of interprets to be the, the word of God or the angels or messengers from heaven and so on who are sort of imparting their wisdom upon her, which she then s speaks and, and is, is transcribed, etc., etc. But we don't really get to see many other kind of actual visions. Like, it's not necessarily visualised on the film itself. We occasionally maybe get some wobbly camera and a bit of blurriness and sort of, while she's sort of fainting and so on. But I thought that was a particular, particular, a particular choice by Von Trotter to not really go down that path of showing us the visions necessarily, especially for a film that's called Vision and is about somebody who had visions. Um, so it made me wonder, well, well what is... 
what's von Trotter saying? What what's what's the vision that she actually wants us to um, be focused on here? And and it made me think. Well, maybe what she's saying is from from reading around that she's a kind of very very much a feminist filmmaker. It's more about um, the vision, perhaps that Hildegard had to um, to to sort of establish herself as a sort of early feminist voice of talking back to the patriarchy, establishing her own place away from the men um, and, you know, carving out her own authority in, in, in a, in a patriarchal system, I suppose. Um, and perhaps that's the, that's the vision, that's the true vision that is being kind of celebrated in this, in this film. Um, but yeah, and then it made me think, well, maybe what's actually happening is that, she, that uh, you know, if pressed von Trotter might be saying that these visions were what we would call um, migraines or seizures or epilepsy or something like that in in the in present day um, present day sort of diagnoses, but then never really gets into the, the the sort of detail of that. But I thought that was kind of an interesting aesthetic choice in this film. Yeah, I I also noticed that because I I was so excited when I saw that there was this film and I got the DVD and I was I I was like waiting for the visions I was waiting for the kind of sensory moments and so when you when you have that scene that you described with the eye it, it almost felt a little bit not quite uncomfortable but it wasn't it wasn't a big you know it wasn't a giant fanfare it wasn't it wasn't you know trumpets coming out of the the clouds it was it was so I, I it didn't it not that it didn't work but it it didn't fulfill my hopes and then like you say there were that you could have done a lot of stylistic things right with the with the lighting and editing and so it's, it it seems like a choice not to do that but but I wonder if in addition to, to the the focus on the vision being her sort of as you say her her vision through life her focus that actually maybe also, the, these actual visions make part of the messages that they're not something that you could just translate into film, um, you know, because it, the character of Hildegard in the film describes them as something she hears with the ear of an inner person, I think she says, or that's what the subtitle translates to, or, you know, in the eyes of an inner person, and that it's impossible for the flesh-cloaked body to understand. So maybe, you know, it... it the I maybe I interpreted it to mean that it was sort of impossible to it it was experienced on a plane that's not translatable into the kind of the five senses that we tend to rely on. Um I I guess that makes me think of um when when films try to portray what it is like to live with specific conditions, you know, like um what when an autist, when a specifically uh, autistic character um, sort of has has um, overwhelming sensory aspects, and they they sort of simulate it with with camera effects, um, and it, it's never it's never right because I mean you you can you can see the difference like I, I'm autistic and I can see the difference, so that's that's. You know that it's not. It's you can't translate it. So, 
that's what that made me think of when you brought that up just then you know it is something that's untranslatable so um maybe maybe any any attempt wouldn't wouldn't quite work um and also thinking of the idea that that um that david brought up that the the vision refers to hildegard's vision of of her goals, I guess that, that makes them sound quite small. <laughs> um, but what, what, what she, what, I guess what I'm leading onto is it's what she believes to be right. And what, one of the first things I noticed is that when she's been given to the cloister as a young girl, she notices that, that um, the, the, um, priest, I'm, I'm not sure his official title is putting the, the deeds to the land or or the money or whatever her parents are given she's she like we see her looking and she sees that there's there's a transfer of property or finances and so i think um it's really interesting that she she sort of learns the rules of the cloister and she she follows them but then she's she's very adamant that she she follows the rules of of god and that 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 is her authority, and she's willing to sort of challenge, um, challenge the authority of these uh, the the men around her that um, are sort of misusing that when she when her vision of what is right isn't isn't going ahead. So maybe that's the vision as well. Her her vision of justice. Yeah, and and in that sense, she's sort of visionary in in the in the way that we might sort of term it these days which i think is yeah i think that's probably the correct choice for this film because i i, I sort of agree with you what you were sort of hinting at before Gemma. I, i'm not entirely sure if that eye moment kind of worked i mean it, to be honest it reminded me more of the eye of sauron than it than it than it than anything else so it all suddenly got a little bit lord of the rings and um and perhaps that wasn't quite right and maybe if we'd had more of that it wouldn't quite have worked especially for the sort of film that this is. Um, and I think it was much more compelling just to watch the character uh, make her way through um, her life and, and the various trials that she sort of endures. And she is wonderful. Like, uh, she's, um, I found her really compelling to sort of watch. And, uh, you know, she's she's got that kind of that hunger for knowledge. There's that moment where she's kind of gets all those books delivered and she gets so excited that all of these books have come in and, and she's just, just so hungry to devour them and, and just to, to, to read as much as possible. Um, but then she also has that kind of, um, yeah, she's very forthright. She knows what she wants. She does not feel um, in any way, concerned about speaking her mind whenever she's faced with these uh with these authorities that she's often sort of placed in front of and towards the end she's there's a scene very close to the end where she's um speaking with the king i'm quite sure is he a king i mean he's dressed in very fancy clothes and he's playing chess and he's sort of prancing around as a king yeah ethan you put your hand up i think that's meant to be charlemagne oh is it i didn't catch that because of the way that he is dressed, I'm pretty sure that robe he's wearing, the gold robe, is the same robe I've seen in 12th century paintings of Charlemagne. I might be wrong, but that was the first thing that came uh, to mind. Uh, but I'll let you finish. 
Yeah, you're probably right there. I mean, my, my medieval history is pretty ropey, so I'm not quite sure who I'm talking about. But no, I think that's, that's, that, could be, that could be the case. It's worth looking at. Anyway, the, one of the things I wanted to just mention was the fact that this has, watching this film has overlapped quite nicely with the book, that, uh, with the book I'm reading at the moment, um, which is Joanne Lindbergh's Letters to My Weird Sisters. Um, so Joanne Lindbergh is an autistic uh, writer, um, poet. Um, she's wonderful, actually, and she's well worth looking up and and um, oh, maybe one day we could get her on this podcast, actually. I think she might be interested in doing that. That'd be really good. Anyway, she's written this this book that she came out earlier this year. Um, and it's a it's it's called Letters to My Weird Sisters on Autism and Feminism. Um, I haven't finished it yet, but it's basically she's written these kind of four letters to various historical figures that she's um, uncovered through kind of archival research. Well, to be honest, one of the one of the historical figures is Virginia Woolf, but then the others are sort of unknown, fairly unknown people, and has used this as a um, as a way of of writing about autism and feminism. Um, and she reflects actually on this on this issue of like um, sort of retro diagnosis. I was going to read this little bit out. Um, where she says, you cannot and you should not diagnose someone posthumously. But if you are working on the assumption that the kind of people we now call autistic have always existed, that it is not unreasonable to wonder who these weird or uncanny individuals might have been, what sort of lives they led, and how the worlds they lived in responded to them. I wanted to know who the weird women were, who were these weird sisters of mine, what sort of lives did they lead, how did the world respond to them? Um... And I like this this whole book as a way of thinking through, um, you know, what Lindbergh terms her weird sisters, and and does so in a in a in a um, positive way, right? And 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 really wants to sort of connect with these people from down in throughout history who have who are women who have not acted in the ways that women have been expected to act in various various ways down the years and I think this film is another reflection on that and that Hildegard in many ways is a is a kind of quote-unquote weird sister but one that has has done pretty well for herself has become canonized and has become revered and lots of her work still exist um uh but it was it's a sort of it was just a lovely um connection that I, that I was able to make with the film that I was watching and the book I was reading at the same time and um yeah I think that thinking through in that way is a, is a, is quite a nice way to to think about these to encounter i suppose these people from the past who we not necessarily should or want to diagnose necessarily i'm i'm kind of umming and nodding so enthusiastically here uh, i i also started reading that book um i have and i also haven't finished it uh but really really love it and um You've reminded me, I think one of the ways she, uh, John, Lim John Lindbergh talks about this uh, approaching these characters, is she, does she talk about like w reading through them or, you know, and, she, and I, I think she talks about these weird sisters in history as mothers, as kind of like weird mothers. And that really touches for me on the relationship that uh, Ethan brought up between Hild the character of Hildegard and the character of Richardis or Ricardis in this uh, in this film, because for me, watching their relationship, it felt like watching two neurodivergent people, two neurodiver neurodivergent sisters finding 
each other and and the kind of excitement and relief and intensity that you can get when you meet your kind of neurodivergent kin um you know and obviously Richardis was um like she knew of Hildegard she was quite obsessed with her when you know before she arrived and it I sort of interpreted that as you know what happens when a person can become your special interest and um and when she was accepted to become an apprentice, she just started spinning on the spot. I don't know if you remember that. And it felt so joyful and quite stimmy. And, um, and it seemed like the, there were these two women who had a real affinity. And yeah, it, so I, whether or not it had this, you know, this queer angle, it sort of doesn't matter because it, there was just something so powerful and beautiful in that. You know, when you, you find someone and you just hold on to them. Son of a gun. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's a brilliant observation. I quite agree because it, it's it's. I also think it's very interesting as well because uh, I was well. I was reading obviously while watching the film. I was doing a little reading for this podcast because I'm a multitasker, um, and there was an excellent article I read, and I've got the name for it here by a woman called Catherine Foxall. Um, it's called "Making Modern Migraine Medieval." bit of a mouthful, Men of Science, Hildegard of Bingen, and the Life of a Retrospective Diagnosis. And uh, part of this work was Foxall going through the number of various writers since the early 20th century who have uh, considered Hildegard and Hildegard's writing and indeed her art. We should also stress, though it does not appear in the film itself, Hildegard was also a very accomplished miniaturist. And a number of her miniatures still survive. And and she cites the fact that uh, writers have in the past sought to sort of marginalise or certainly straitjacket the unique nature of Hildegard by assigning them to various diagnoses, points of view. Um, the one that sticks closest to me, mainly because of uh, this gentleman's relationship to autism, is Oliver Sacks. Sachs, uh, his first book was on migraines, uh, as he was obviously a doctor uh, first before he became um, very much sort of interested in neuropsychology. And uh, he, uh, the, she, she quotes a line where basically he reduces her visions to little more than a chemical process rushing through her brain. And uh, I found that very interesting as well. And I think the conversations we're having are, are very interesting in sort of terms of you know how how do we how do we understand a figure like Hildegard, and how do we not turn her into sort of like um, a, a prop, shall we say, for something to to support a, an ideology? Having said that, the, the, it's I can understand the immense pleasure, Gemma, you must take from that sense of identification. Uh, it sounds a little, if I may say, like identification, in as much as Hildegard and Ricardis being neurodivergent friends and having this intense bond. I've certainly had this with a number of uh, neurodiverse people. Um, in fact, I would say that some of my closest friendships are with neurodiverse people simply because we operate on a level that is different to those around us. And so I think that's a, I, I, I'm just, I'm just still like, wow, that's such, it's just such a great point. Just mm, chef's kiss. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I sort of got that little bell ringing when when Ricardis 
Um, it was a little bit later on when um, she's in the herb garden with uh, Hildegard and she does like she steps forward when she shouldn't step forward and Hildegard's a little bit like, mm, what are you doing? You know, be- behave yourself sort of thing. And then is kind of and bl- just like blurting out, like just can't control her speech almost like this is Ricardus like she she just has to say things and gets very excited about saying things which again can be a bit of a kind of neurodivergent autistic trait potentially um and but what's really important about that relationship between Hildegard and, and Ricardus and what's really important about the fact that Hildegard is our protagonist and our kind of hero in this film is that when you have Ricard is slightly stepping out of line and slightly bending the rules just through her kind of sheer excitement of being in this place. Um, Hildegard softens and allows it. And I think it is because of that that kind of neurodivergent connection that they have. She sort of sees that this is how this person is happy, how this person needs to be in this situation, and that in some way she can't control control herself. And And that's kind of okay as long as she's not hurting anyone or not upsetting anyone. And of course, later on, there's a sort of betrayal when Ricardis goes to a, a, a different abbey or, or wherever she's gone. She's gone to be an abbess in a different place and Hildegard takes that very badly um, and, and finds that really... And in, in a way that's almost quite selfish of Hildegard, really, she starts becoming really possessive of Ricardis. But one of the, the lines that I really liked that I noted down um, was just after that garden herb garden scene when uh, Hildegard and her 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 sort of monk friend Volmer, who was the the guy who sort of writes down all the visions, they're sort of walking away from from um, Ricardus, and I think it's Volmer that says oh, we could use a little demon like her, and I thought that was a really lovely line. Actually, it's quite a humorous little line, and you know the 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 the, the word demon and devil gets thrown around quite a lot in in this film, and Hildegard herself gets accused of being the devil or be or hearing from the devil but at that moment there's a nice little soft moment i think where they sort of jokingly refer to this slightly different nun as a as a kind of demon but in a, in a kind of a pleasant way which i sure thought was really nice just briefly to kick in here um all that stuff with ricardis was in fact fact um i did some reading on Bingen and uh, sort of that element that uh, ricardis not only was ricardis real but that falling out did in fact happen ricardis went to be an abbess at another abbey and Hildegard did not take that well in the slightest. Another interesting fact, and I'm not sure how this contributes to the conversation, but I find it quite fun nonetheless, was that um, Hildegard was known for being notoriously stubborn to the point where she would have, you see her a number of times having these um, uh, attacks, shall we say, where she's rendered pretty much paralyzed. There's the one near the end where she is effectively prostrate eyes open doesn't move and we, we effectively she looks like she's dead apparently hildegard whenever hildegard was crossed she would often take to her bed for a multitude of days uh, until she got her way uh, often doing things such as this uh, which i found um which i'm not sure how it relates to anything but i found quite sort of a, a testament perhaps to her very sort of individualistic very stubborn nature um and also how much von Trotter bases the film on actual fact itself in as much as recorded evidence, but never pull, comes down on either side of, is this woman seeing visions? Is this woman uh, 
quote-unquote faking it. That's not her interest. Her interest is instead, I feel, the sociopolitical elements behind it in relation to Hildegard's relationship to the community of nuns, but also the church and the social structures and political structures of the church itself. Um, yeah, I, I definitely saw Ricardus as, as you know... Um kind of a bit weird too in the same way that Hildegard was you know when she started spinning um it it did seem out of place but my immediate reaction was well why not like people people are people are whipping themselves and and having vows of silence like if that's how she expresses her emotions um I mean, there's there's plenty of other religions where you know ecstatic movement is is perfectly acceptable, um, and as much as um, they find this common ground, Ricardus and Hildegard, they they do have very different, well, they have differences and they have um, different ways of being and behaving. So it was quite nice how, you know, um, what we might say, you know, that their sort of communication styles clash today or whatever but they still they still have a very like a really beautiful relationship and um just thinking about you know what was was it possibly queer in the film or not um you know it's difficult in the same way that it's difficult to put the labels of a specific diagnosis on that now um and it, it 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 made me think of this idea of Hildegard's visions can't be translated, but maybe we can't translate Hildegard's life and um, what she experienced and and that with the language we have now, um, and because we can never know and we can never translate it, maybe maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe um, Margaret von Trotter is saying maybe that's why she's not showing the visions because the visions aren't as important as the impact that they had on the world and the impact that Hildegard is still having on people today. Um, so it doesn't, it, I guess, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, and I, I think that there's, there's this, the scene where the sort of um, church officials come and interrogate Hildegard and shower her near the beginning was very much like a, a diagnostic scene in a way that that's what I wrote down as like this is like um, a medieval diagnosis um, and they're trying to put a label on it but they don't have the language either even well in this film even even then they don't have the language and I think also talking of um, Hildegard's sort of um, re reaction to sort of traditional gender roles and, and whether that played a factor in how they viewed, well, it definitely did play a factor in how they viewed her, but also it was quite sort of, um, it reminded me of how uh, um, gender can play a factor, a huge factor in diagnosis today, um, still, in, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh John James, I was just, I know I muted when you, I was just here shouting, yes, yes. Uh, the, the, um, that scene where they're interrogating her, I also felt like it was a diagnosis, but it, it, but 
it also made me feel like it made me think of um you know like uh i mean i, I know not all of the audience of the podcast are going to be in the uk but in the uk you have the disability benefit personal independence payment um and it's a really brutal system and often people are denied it and then they have to go through appeal and usually they get it on the appeal and it made me think of those like appeal tribunals where you're being really challenged like your reality is being questioned um and you're having to prove yourself to a kind of hostile board that that's what i thought of um and you've you've said you've said the word un, untranslatable a couple of times which every time you say it, it pings um lingua ignota which was the the name sh- that she gave to her language that she created which means unknown language and I, i think there's something there about the inability to translate um it's all very exciting isn't it and uh, I, <laughs> i also wanted to respond to uh, just pick up what ethan was saying about um maybe about the migraines and and about her taking to bed you know this idea that she that you know maybe uh, what we know about the real car- the real Hildegard is that she took to bed, you know, and the story we have now like 800 years later is that she did it in anger. But when in the film when I saw that character kind of bedbound and particularly those two moments when she looked like she was dead and everyone around her thought she was dead and it was almost like a miraculous revival, it really put me in mind of uh, extreme shutdowns, autistic shutdowns and autistic inertia when you can't move and you and you know i've experienced it myself and i know i've read you know other people's accounts of it when you just can't move you can't speak and i think there was a moment in the film when they said you know she she can't speak at the moment and she spent days kind of without words and um yeah i i that that's what i thought when i saw that and it, it may be that it was like she she certainly does seem like a stubborn character and it may be that it's related to a stubbornness but it may also just be like a kind of the overwhelm of trying to fight the patriarchy trying to get your voice heard trying to exist and having your reality denied and just like I'm done I'm shut down that that's how I read it no i certainly believe that is more than likely the case as well um i also should stress as though that those um i should have stressed earlier that those people who said yes she took to her bed for a long time were often people who uh, had crossed Hildegard and um uh, and then not gotten their way and i think it was often a lot of men so i think it was more than likely a rumor spread around by men as a way to sort of uh, put her in a place but yes um interestingly autistic inertia is something i'm working on currently in relation to one of my thesis chapters so it's uh, although i've not actually used that term in itself so that's a very very yeah i certainly i certainly think you can see that as just this intense catatonia on her part of just i can't deal with these emotions anymore i know it's certainly she has one after after i believe she speaks to the church authority who says yeah we're not going to um get ricardis away from the from from being at the abbey she's she's the abbess now you can't do anything about it and then i think she drops she she walks out of the room and basically has an attack in the hallway i'm pretty sure but uh, my memory is a little hazy so yes i think there certainly may well be something to that just like the sheer intense overwhelm of the situation
I just thought I'd throw, uh, throw in a, a bit of a question about one particular scene that I thought was quite curious, and I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, I mean, it's, I guess it's um, all just part and parcel of her kind of slight sort of resistance of the normal ways of doing things. But there was a quite nice scene, a quite remarkable scene halfway through where she invites another um, head nun from a different um, church, I don't know, Abbey, wherever it is, um, to come to them. Or she, this is other kind of nun is visiting them. And they put on this show for uh, her. And uh, they get very sort of excited about this. And they sort of put on a, a effectively a kind of play, really, where Volmer is a kind of demon devil type person. And the rest of the nuns are all various virtues. Um, and it was, I just thought it was quite a remarkable scene because all of a sudden, the 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 women here have kind of removed their nunnery vestments and they are wearing kind of almost quite cultish sort of white gowns and garlands of flowers and their hair is out and it's it's long and flowing and they're doing this um play which is sort of a cloaked kind of um narrative of kind of sexual desire and resisting sexual desire on this kind of thing um and it was interesting, and it doesn't go down well with this nun that, that that they've invited. She's like, you know, women should not be. The Bible says that women should not be showing their hair, and they should not be dressing in this sexually provocative ways, and all this kind of thing. And Hildegard has to do a little bit of a kind of um, a bit of a sort of her kind of firm resistance of this of this sort of thing. But then we never really see this happen again, and it, it almost just happens just for one particular scene, and for the rest of the time, they're all. They remain covered up um, in the kind of traditional nun way. I, I just wondered what people made of that moment, and um, I thought it was quite an interesting moment that that just sort of stood out for me. So, uh, I th- so I did some research on that. That is uh, what they perform is now seen as the world's first or the earliest surviving verse drama. That is effect. So it's an incredibly uh, important piece of music in terms of yeah, it was performed and I believe it can still be revived all the parts still exist for it so um yeah maybe 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 a, a, an autism through cinema podcast uh, recording uh in all seriousness I it's a fascinating uh scene because it demonstrates um I think it just demonstrates Hildegard's sheer difference in terms of she has a extremely different interpretation of scripture but that in itself is interesting because scripture is in the in the in the film itself scripture is often a subject of debate by which i mean it's very clearly the the orthodox church and i use the word orthodox not in relation to the actual eastern orthodox church but i mean more sort of a a general uh, mainstream uh clearly sees uh, church like uh, 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 scripture in one way and it often puts women in a very submissive uh, position to men and in some respects I think you can certainly see the abbess who comes to um, see the drama and spends most of her time looking horrified at the whole affair in a quite a funny way as very much adhering to that doctrine of women are meant to be meek and servile and covered up where um, Hildegard is perhaps uh, Hildegard provides just as legitimate a scriptural uh, 
justification for her being. And indeed, actually, it's fair to say that she completely believes... I think it's absolutely fair to say she completely believes everything uh, and she speaks with complete conviction. And again, I find that interesting because as well, when, um, when, when the last thing we hear of this other abbess is, oh, yes, I'm on a fast, so I'm not going to eat anything. And so there's the, again, there's the thing of, um, I think... I'll use this word, although often it's been used in very different contexts, and it's sensuality. And I think Hildegard, in one way, shape or form, is a sensual being in as much as she is very much in contact with her feelings, uh, uh, the the nature and nature around her. Uh, The herbalism, I think, comes in here because that is very much a um, dealing with the body in a natural manner. Uh, using natural remedies to cure ailments. Um, indeed, uh, there is still in Germany, there is a herbalist's league, uh, which is named after Hildegard in recognition of her her pioneering work. Uh, and I also think, again, that's quite relevant considering the interest in, in, in alternative medicine that has sprung up in one form or another in the last 10 or so years. Um, so I think that's a very, very interesting element as well as how uh, sort of not bodily she is, but how in touch with herself as a human being she is rather than the more aesthetically minded abbess who she sees, but also the monks themselves. Uh, does that relate to autism? That I'm not sure of. I certainly think that it's, a, again, as with all things, it's a spectrum. Haha. And uh, I, I, I certainly lean towards a more sort of bodily enjoyment of life uh, and enjoy, sorry, say more sort of, I, I enjoy sort of uh, the sort of uh, the, the sensations that can come from existence, although I know some can be overwhelming to the point of exhaustion. And I know that conversely, there are some who would like to deny any of that sort of that sort of intense sensation as well. But I thought it'd be interesting to mention this sort of relative, um, yeah, th- this this sort of very deep divide between Hildegard and the orthodoxy of the church. Yeah, um, that, I think you're right uh, about her kind of sensual relating and her, her relating to the world as a human being and a human anim- animal in a way. And... Um, I think my, I maybe said something similar in the previous episode that I was lucky enough to be a guest at, but um, in the Phenomena episode, talking about how in that film, the main character had these kind of sensory relations with insects and with, you know, non-human beings. And Hildegard, in her writing, she spoke a lot about this thing called viriditas, which they don't really mention in the film, which was unexpected, but it's like the green, the greening power of God or the, or the godly power of the green. And in her writings, her access to God is through nature and through um, the forest and through and animals. And like, again, like they mentioned at the beginning, you know, through plants and with the herbalism. So, yeah, I think... I think that's an important aspect um, of her religious experiences and her, her, you know, way of being. And and with that scene, David, I thought it for me it kind of it really high. It just made me 
sort of appreciate the character as a bit of a feminist icon. Um, and earlier in the film, she, I think one of, the, one of the points when she has to go and talk to an archbishop or someone or get their approval, and is it Volmar says, you know, he, hate, he, you know, he hates women. And, um, and she said, yeah, but he loves the Virgin Mary. And um, again, in, like, in, her, in, the, in the real Hildegard's writing, she writes a lot about the female characters in that kind of Christian canon. Um, so, yeah, there's something there about the kind of the female, the fecundity. Like she, it's almost a bit pagan, but in a in a Christian context, and that's what I got from that scene as well. Like really bringing that to it. I think um, I really admired um, how the film depicted like a lack of separation between mind and body, like. Hildegard um, says that um, fasting and prayer won't heal the body alone. And, 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 and then the, the nun reacting to the play, she says she's fasting, you know, so it's like this denial of, um, of even said, um, like sen sensuality in, in like in all aspects, but also, you know, um, nourishment and what the body needs and, um, and so, yeah, it feels like Hildegard, I, I didn't know about that concept that you brought up, Gemma, but like the, the idea that, you know, um, every, everything is kind of like connected and, and, and also Hildegard's visions and, and her, her, um, I don't know how to describe them, her, her, I don't want to say condition, her alternate states that she enters, they affect her, not just mentally, but, but physically, as we've said, you know, she's, she's, she becomes unwell and, and they mention saints often becoming unwell. So I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting, especially if we think of like um, neuro, neurodivergent um, conditions and um, autism specifically, you know, how, how it affects your your body as well as your mind if they are separate you know um and and how there's so many you know it's a very holistic view of the world and it's something that i really admired yeah yeah and i was just going to say i, I liked how they, they sort of spend a, a bit of time in the first half of the film contrasting that with the more extreme ways in which um people at this time sort of connected with their bodies i suppose which is through the sort of self-flagellation and the, the there's the the mother not literal mother the sort of the nun mother who um uh hildegard as a youngster is kind of looking up to which is the i think her name's jutta um who who dies fairly early on in the film and then when they're kind of preparing her body they sort of open up her her robe and there's a there's a I don't even know what you would call it, but a sort of belt that is with spikes on it that's around her belly and that she's clearly been wearing as a kind of self-flagellation sort of uh, device. And Hildegard clearly kind of rejects all of that very early on. Uh, as a child, she seems to, to decide that this is not the correct thing to do. And later on, she chastises um, one of the monks, I think, for uh, for the self-flagellation that he's done done to himself. So there's a kind of... There's also a sort of yeah a, a sort of note being made there about the the 
the correct ways or the sort of more balanced ways to to connect sensually with your body which is through as you say john james through nourishment through uh, learning through um you know being and even to a certain extent working uh and, and there are times when she's she's telling the nuns to to, to work quite hard either in the herb garden or in the construction of the new abbey where they where they where they end up uh, moving to um and yeah i just think that that makes a nice counterpoint there this kind of rejection of of violence and pain i think and suffering in a way small thing on yutta what she's wearing around her is a chain uh yutta was in fact another is a real character um she was what was called and i'm saying this more for the listeners of the podcast rather than those uh, uh i'm on the panel podcast with because i'm assuming they already know what this is she was an anchoress and an anchoress was an individual uh, a young woman who would choose to be often shut up in a room for the rest of her life uh, for the service of God, to be as close to God as possible. Yutta was one of them, uh, and amongst those things, she wore the chain around her body for, I think, all of her life. She uh, refused dietary like changes and supplements. Uh, she, she adhered to an extremely strict diet, um, because she felt it was closer to bringing her to God. And this was in freezing German weather as well. And she would she would pray through this bitterly cold German weather to, uh, almost as a test of her own endurance, if you wish, to bring her as close to God as possible. There's a very good film called Anchoress. It's from the early 90s. The BFI released it ages ago, but it's quite hard to find these days, with Pete Postlethwaite, uh, Christopher Eccleston and Toya Wilcox. And it's about an anchoress in medieval Britain. I highly recommend it. It's very interesting, um, very beautiful. Um, but I think that's. I think you're quite right to bring up that there are two very different ways to acknowledge the body. And um, for Yutta, uh, it's one of radical, radical punishment and a sensuality that is radical only in as much as it is. Not masochistic, but certainly aggressively denialist, uh, where the point is the pain becomes the sensation, rather than with Hildegard, which becomes a lot more gentle, holistic, uh, based on sort of a sense of ecstasy and a sense of um, spiritual goodness and spiritual oneness. I would also like to point out, I find it quite, not amusing, but interesting, that when a, a woman is... Uh, believes that um, Hildegard is the devil. Yeah, at the end of that sequence, with the fasting and uh, uh, fasting and prayer will not um, save us, she takes a gemstone out and uh, asks the woman to hold it to her throat until the anger uh, dies within you, or something of that extent. And, it, and we never see the woman again. We just see her looking at Hildegard with a sort of puzzled expression, and then the scene ends. But I thought that was a very, very interesting element as well, that um, though obviously there is a great deal of um, scepticism, perhaps rightly so, around certain elements of crystal healing, it's interesting that uh, von Trotter chooses to include uh, uh, Hildegard practising uh, sad techniques. Yeah, and also, also sort of worth saying as well that 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 the, 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 the what she's practicing there is kind of like I hesitate to word to say the word science, but it's like it's it's almost as if she's sort of setting herself on more upon the scientific track um, rather than the kind of just extreme sort of pain and um, 
you know inter these sort of painful interpretations of the scripture she's 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 learning about the herbs and how they how they help people and 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 you know that that crystal is another is another example of that even though we now would look at that and think well that's not going to work but in a way holding a nice crystal to your throat and just calming down may well be the the answer to people who are angry but anyway listen we are we've gone uh, We've been recording for quite some time here, for like nearly an hour and a quarter. So I think we probably uh, should bring it to an end. But that is uh, that was, I think, a really brilliant discussion, really fascinating discussion. Really nice to get to know Hildegard von Bingen, who is someone I, I personally um, was not really very aware of before this moment. So it's been a, a real pleasure to to spend that time with her and with you guys. Um, so thank you very much. So I'll say a quick thank you to uh, John James Laidlow, Ethan Lyon, and Gemma Williams. Um, uh, this has been the Autism Through Cinema podcast. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks with, a, with another episode, hopefully. Um, but until then, uh, goodbye, and we hope you have some, some lovely visions. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> you have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and the Wellcome Trust. Thanks also to Leverett Jakes for supporting us with their unfailingly excellent editing skills. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion of the films we talk about, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at cinemaautism at gmail.com. That's cinemaautism with a shared A in the middle of the word. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.